So I'm not I'm not disputing coming to take me away. I'm not disputing, I'm not disputing, you know, anyone's right to, to worship Krishna in a way that they're comfortable with. I'm just saying, though, there are certain laws of nature. The way I put it is, if a karmi, a jnani, a yogi, and a devotee all jump off a cliff, they will all fall exactly at the same speed according to the laws of physics. You know, there, there are just certain laws of nature. And so if we want to make this, because Prabhupada, Prabhupada put that in my heart and my brain, that this is meant to be a powerful mainstream movement not a little special ethnic specialty item. You know, this is meant to be, a, this, is, this movement is meant to change America. And all of the social science, all of the history, all the Vaishnav history tells me that unless we have a course correction, unless we really start focusing on spiritual science and not ethnic details, it will not happen. And, you know, you can say I'm right, you can say I'm wrong, but I, I'm not denying Maharaj any which way to spread Krishna consciousness is a good thing, you know, so I'm, but there are I'm certain challenging are, this. Yeah, it, it's like, but history shows certain things work. And it's even working now. What we're seeing is that almost all the successful mm. preaching programs in North America are adopting all or some of these principles that I'm saying. But, but the mainstream is also accepting, like uh, the company that I work for, you know, it's an IT company, big insurance company. We have a Diwali program, which is attended by like the highest number of people in the company. And everybody wears saris and, you know, dhotis and everything. And even the white people uh, come into our fashion shows, love to be in the fashion show and, you know, dance and do okay. everything. I mean, okay. it's not exactly a Krishna conscious program, but still what I'm saying is that they are accepting the culture well, I would very say, heartily I would say, and very wonderfully, you know. Well, I will give a slightly different version of that. Not of the facts. I mean, obviously, you know the facts. I'm not disputing the facts. But what I would say is that in the West today or in America today, there are certain cultural spaces which are kind of socially authorized, not legally like it's respectable or even interesting to um participate in those spaces within within the within a certain perimeter so for example in america today if you're an educated person especially if you work with say in it and you have a lot of asian co-workers and you know like maybe one day a year to kind of participate in their culture absolutely positive for example when i was a little kid in school because there's a lot of mexican influence you know in southern california where i grew up and so, you know, we, we, we made serapis with little like sort of like Mexican chatters. We wore the Mexican hats and we learned Mexican dances. No one, no one was going to become a Mexican. No one was going to move to Mexico. No one's going to adopt that as their primary culture. It was just like a little, it was fun. You know, yeah, let's like one day of the year, let's dress like, you know, like traditional Mexican dress or, or, you know, like, like when, when uh, like politicians go to different countries and they'll wear a shirt from that culture, they're put on a hat. So yeah, that is culturally fine. That, that's, that's great. However, adopting the culture in a more serious way, making it your primary cultural orientation is absolutely not happening. And so I think, I think that devotees, frankly, I think we're a little desperate for attention. 
And so we kind of play up these anecdotal things and we're not looking at the basic laws of how societies function. But like Montipria says, the, 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 the Catholic nuns and the priests and all that, they kept up the tradition of wearing a certain uniform. Ha yes, however, here's another little fact for your grace. What the statistics are is that today for every person that joins the Catholic Roman Catholic Church in America, six people leave. All the studies that they are bleeding members rapidly. In fact, the Roman Catholic Church is becoming more and more a third world church. It's growing in third world countries and shrinking in first world countries. And obviously there's a huge factor of child abuse and all that, but, but what I'm saying is it's not growing. And another thing is that they don't go out, if you go to a Catholic service and there is a priest that has special clothes, but not the congregation. The standard in many Hare Krishna temples is the congregation is wearing priestly robes. It's, and that I would say to most Western people is bizarre. I mean, what would you think? Let's say, let's say you went out on the street and there were some Christians singing and dancing and they were dressed like Palestinians from 2000 years ago. And maybe they had pictures of camels, like we can have, you know, like we have cow protection programs. Maybe they have like camel protection programs. And these are Americans. These are like white Americans. And they're dressed like Palestinians 2000 years ago. And, and, and they actually preach that if you really want to love Jesus, you have to adopt, you know, Middle Eastern culture. What I would think is they're very sincere and extremely eccentric. Let me give you one example, since we're also we're, we're trafficking here in anecdotes. So I'll throw one in. <laughs> when I, I'm really enjoying this. I mean, it's good. You guys are pushing back. I love this. So in, uh, when I went to Harvard, when I went to Harvard, you know, in the Sanskrit and Indian Studies Department, I found out very quickly that the Hare Krishna movement was a, a big laughing stock in the Harvard Sanskrit and Indian Studies Department. It was like a running gag. It was like a running joke. And the devotees, well, of course, a little close to home, you know, actually, <laughs> PR is right there in New England. PR, don't, 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 don't cut it off. So anyway, so what I, like devotees would go to Harvard Square and, you know, they would, at least back then, they would like run around circles and jump up and down and bang on their drums and everything. And it was just like, it was a big joke. And then I went to Harvard in that department and by Prabhupada's mercy, because Prabhupada blessed me to study Sanskrit when I was young, by Prabhupada's mercy, you know, I knew about as much as the teachers. And so I got my, doc I actually got the fastest doctorate in the history of my department at Harvard. And, uh, and I, um, you know, I got my doctorate in about half, one half to one third the time of the other students. And so, you know, they, they respected that. They respect, and, and I would go there. I went there as a devotee. I had neck beads. I had a bead bag. In fact, one of the teachers asked me sort of innocently, I noticed that when the class gets boring, you, you're chanting on your beads. But anyway, so I went there as, as a Vaishnav, neck beads. I had my little shikha and, and, my, and my bead bag. And, uh, 
And so the same students were laughing at the Hare Krishna movement. After a short time, they were actually asking me to speak about the movement. I was getting all these invitations twice. I had an entire Harvard department, like all the students, graduate students, all the professors, even a few other professor related departments twice, they came out to my house for Taprashadam and hang out with devotees and ask questions, a whole Harvard department. I was invited to speak. I was invited to speak at this um, Harvard conference. My talk, which by the way, was a I wrote a paper defending Prabhupada's non-literal translation style. And I explained that actually it's, it's squarely in the, the Vaishnava tradition, going back to the Bhagavatam. And, and, and I, I proved this, that Prabhupada is actually giving the traditional parampara, non-literal translation style. And then Harvard published that, Harvard Press published it. And the last thing Harvard did, you know, go Harvard, be true to your school. So there's this, there's this uh, book series called, right? Some loud bragger tries to put me, anyway, the Beach Boy. So Harvard has this thing called the Harvard Oriental Series, which is one of the most prestigious uh, book series in the world on India and other things in Asia. I mean, in the last 130 years, they published 91 books in the last 130 years. And they just published number 91 just a few months ago, which was my doctoral dissertation. So what I mean to say is that um, go Harvard. This, and, and, and this, these are the same people who were laughing at the Hare Krishna movement. Laughing, it was a big joke. So what did I do differently? I met them halfway. I went there as a devotee. I, I, you know, I used to chant rounds, you know, between classes. I had my Kanti Mala and, and all that. I, you know, everyone knew who I was. I didn't hide who I was. And yet I met them halfway and I respected their rules and their traditions. And it, the result was incredible. So, you know, as I say, wake up and smell the kafta. You know, you have to, um, if we're actually gonna, if we're actually gonna spread this movement, you just, you're not gonna defy the laws of nature. That's not our philosophy. When Rupa Goswami says the beginning of nectar devotion, that when you really surrender to Krishna, become a serious practicing devotee, that you are liberated from your karma, which is true, of course, you were freed from your karma, you were liberated. It doesn't mean you become free from the laws of nature. That's a, that's a philosophical misunderstanding. The law of gravity, sociological principles, historical principles, we are not beyond the laws of nature. The laws of nature are the laws of God. And my simple point is that if we continue trying to culturally colonize the Western world, we're going to have a very, very long wait. History has shown over and over and over again it doesn't work. And if you look at the, at the Vaishnav history, it is a history of adapting. What I am trying to do in my own imperfect, arrogant way, you know, the Krishna West, 
is what Vaishnavs have been doing for thousands of years. The idea that there's one fixed standard ethnicity that comes down through the ages is, 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 is mythology. Vaishnav history is a history of keeping the basic principles and adapting the details. That's the history of Vaishnavism. Well, so more power I, to you, Maharaj. I mean, I guess we can do it every which way, Krishna East and Krishna West, whichever way to get people to Krishna consciousness is a great thing, you know. So I, I'm not, yes. you know, challenging Thank, that. Yeah, no, no, I appreciate that. And it's it's funny because one sannyasi said, yeah, he's sort of making a joke out of it, Krishna West, this is years ago. And he said, yeah, why not Krishna North or Krishna South? And my reply was maybe, maybe because there's no such thing as northern culture, or southern culture. But anyway, so yeah, the, the the two great cultures are Eastern culture and Western culture, and the importance of the West is that Prabhupada's entire global strategy depends on making this work in the West. So there's a huge amount at stake here. This is not a low stakes game. Every, for me, everything is at stake. My entire relationship with Prabhupada, this is what he kept hammering into me. The importance of making this movement work among Americans. And that was his global strategy. Mm -hmm. So I, I have one last question. I heard that you're uh, translating the Bhagavad Gita. What kind of a translation is this? Oh, I've already done it. I've already done it. The good news is I published it several years ago. It is, okay, I'll tell you what I did very quickly. First of all, um, because I, some of my intellectual, you could say, proclivities are very Western. For example, I really like literal translation. I just, it's just, you know, I just really enjoy that. So um, in the Gita, what I did was, because I love the Gita so much, and I love the Sanskrit of the Gita, which I've been reading for most of my life, I tried to give a translation, which is so literal that you could have the experience as close as possible in English that a person that knows Sanskrit would have reading Sanskrit. You get as close as possible to the Sanskrit text for people who don't know Sanskrit. And the second thing I did was, there's like 150 pages of explanation in which I sort of placed on myself a certain, how should I put it, restriction. And that is rather than doing the normal thing where you quote from all different Puranas and Upanishads and you know Bhagavatam, what I did was, and, and it's not that you have to do this because the Vaishnav tradition in general does quote from all these different Shastras because the Vaishnav tradition was preaching to people in India who accepted the authority of all these books. And so in the West, you can't just say, well, look, it says in the Gopal Tapani Upanishad, therefore it's true. In India, that may be a, you know, a, a slam dunk, but not in the West. And so therefore, what I took upon myself was the challenge of, I took all the basic words in the Gita, like yoga, bhakti, jnana, buddhi, yajna, just all the, you know, whole list of all the basic terms. And I defined them internally from the Gita itself. Like for each term, I said, what I, I looked at everything Krishna says on the word jnana, everything Krishna says about yajna, Everything Krishna says about buddhi, everything Krishna says about dhyana, meditation. And I defined each term based on a literal reading of Krishna's words. And I demonstrated that in the Bhagavad Gita, God has a spiritual body. 
that God's body is not like the bodies of conditioned souls, which are temporary. And that I just, I, I, I proved all the basic, that at least what, what the attitude I took toward the reader is not, I'm not trying to convert you, but I'm trying to, what, what I will prove to you is that this is what Krishna is really saying. That our understanding of the Gita as Vaishnavas is actually what Krishna is saying. And I proved that internally, just within Krishna's own language. And therefore, if you're attracted to the Gita, if you have faith in the Gita, this is what it actually teaches. So the experience we've had is that people give it, you know, to their friends, to their dentist, to this person, that person, people read it and understand it. And you have many devotees. So it's, it's yeah. But wait, buy one today and I will send you a, an, anyway, just kidding. So yeah, that was the Gita. Now I'm working on Mahabharata. So Krishna's keep me out of trouble. Thank you. Thank you for answering all my questions. Pleasure. It's, it's really a pleasure. Maharaj. Yes, yes, please. My Who's name that? is Sudhir Devidasi. I'm on oh. a phone call. I'm not visible oh, okay. on the thing. I would like a copy of your book because I've heard wonderful things and it said you have to read it with the Bhagavad Gita as it is and it will clarify things because I've heard about your book and I would like to get a copy. But and the last time you were at our temple, I missed your lecture because I had a baby and I had to go out of the room and I couldn't hear you, but I saw the yagya and the initiation. So I did see you, but I didn't get to hear from you. So this is a nice experience to hear from you. Thank you I very much. One, you left my class. One. You left my class just to have a baby. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, but. Twenty-five years ago, when you came to our temple, or twenty twenty-four years, I had a one-year-old baby, so I couldn't hear your oh, lecture. Right, right. But I did see the yagya and the initiation that Mukunda was getting initiated. So oh, Mukunda! See. Is that your son? Yeah, Mukunda, Mukunda Dev. Yeah, that's when you came to our temple the last. Oh, time. I remember you very well. It's nice to talk to you. Yeah, but anyway, Maharaj, I had one uh, uh, clarification that I needed to ask. I mean, I heard all the conversations with all the devotees. Yes. But I think Prabhupada once said that I understand your principle that we don't have to be identified by our clothes, that we can still be devotees without wearing the clothes that we wear. But I think one place Prabhupada said, when a policeman wears a uniform and a plain clothes policeman, he's still a policeman, but his authority is more visible when he has his uniform on. So we okay, are identified yes. by Krishna's. When yeah, we are yeah. seen with our devotional clothes, that otherwise people would not know that we are Hare Krishna. Good that point. I, yeah. I want to I want to analyze that because Prabhupada is very interesting. If you look at Prabhupada's life in the biographies, if you look at Prabhupada in India, it was very different because in India, Prabhupada attracted and was dealing with the most important people in the country. I mean, the leading industrialists, leading politicians. And so, and so, whereas in the West, he was dealing with just, you know, young people like ourselves who we didn't know, you know, we didn't know from nothing. So, so if you look at the conversation, it's a very interesting study, Prabhupada's conversation with disciples in the West and his conversations with his followers in India who were often leading citizens. In India, the conversations are much more mature. They're much more mature and they're much more inter interactive in the sense that on Siddhanta, on our spiritual philosophy, there's no question, Prabhupada was the authority. And if, and, and if, you know, if these people challenged him, he would you know, fill them full of lead, so to speak. So, 
But when it came to practical things like how to dress and how to what kind of design or articles and back to God, it was very interactive. And Prabhupada would say this and they would say, no, Prabhupada, you can't do that in Indians. He would, and so Prabhupada, they, they would compromise. They would, it was a much more mature adult conversation. Prabhupada did not at all take the position that I'm materially infallible. He absolutely did not take that position. So I'm, I'm sorry, I, forgive me, but uh, you just, what, what, was the, what was the point you just made? Just remind me quickly. No, I, I said that uh, we can be devotees of Krishna without wearing the dhotis and the saris, but when we wear our dhotis and saris, we identify... Oh, uniform. Them, okay, I remember, like yes. Police, like yeah, the yeah. policeman wearing the uniform. I remember. No, I know that, I know that. Yeah, I know that, the uniform argument. Thank you. So, so therefore, in the spirit, because now my body, although I obviously look like I'm, you know, roughly early 40s, but actually my body is uh, 71 years old. It's amazing, you know, how, how advanced cosmetic surgery is these days. So anyway, so at the age of 71, at the age of 71, I feel it's, and having served Prabhupada my whole life, I feel it's natural and necessary that I discuss with Prabhupada the way he discussed very happily with senior people that really knew what was going on in India. And I think I really know what's going on in the West. And Prabhupada wanted those kinds of conversations and he was completely open to them and appreciated them. And so I feel my duty to my spiritual father right now is it's like, let's say your father owns a store and he's selling a certain product and it's selling really well, then he leaves you the store as an inheritance, times have changed, the store is going bankrupt. You say, we've got to put new merchandise on the shelf. No, no, but dad didn't sell that. So, so here's the point. Uh, the uniform analogy fails for two reasons, logically, which I will explain. Number one, if you say a policeman or a fireman or something like that, in that example, almost everyone in the society already accepts the authority of the police or the fire department. The uniform doesn't create the authority. It's already a given. Whereas in the case of devotees, in fact, very few Western people accept we are the authorities about God. We are the authorities about spiritual life. And so that's the first huge disanalogy. In the case of a fireman or a policeman, all you need to know is, for example, let's say there's a fire. Who's the fireman or who's the police? If you feel like that you're in danger and you see a policeman, you rush to the policeman. You, you just need to know which one it is. In the case of us, people do not just need to know that we're the Hare Krishnas. In fact, they may have the opposite effect. Because people do not, it's not a widespread cultural assumption that we are the authorities on spiritual philosophy. The second disanalogy, major disanalogy is that even in the case of police or, 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 or firemen, um, the uniform is not random. The uniform is specifically tailored, designed to convey authority within a specific cultural context. So for example, if you look at the Roman legions in, in that 
society, red. Red was like this military or conveyed authority, the color red. So you see these pictures of the Romans with their you know, red plumes and everything. Whereas because of the nature of warfare in modern times, uh, there's a need for camouflage. So camouflage colors, green, brown, or, you know, they're, they're kind of like, or, or say police wear dark blue. Those are military colors. And they convey the authorized use of force. Like even a fireman, let's say, has to break a window or break a door down or something, or a policeman. So, so the uniforms are designed, tailored within a specific cultural context. It's not universal. It's a specific cultural context to convey the authorized use of power. Now, what I would say is that within Western culture, dhotis and saris, which by the way, never in history were Vaishnav dressed. There's absolutely no evidence that a dhoti or a sari was ever specifically Vaishnav dressed rather than just the way Indians dressed. But those particular clothes do not convey the right message in Western culture. They do not convey authority. They convey exoticness. Even in India, for example, if a woman wears a sari, it doesn't mean she's a Vaishnavi. Maybe she's a Hindu lady. It doesn't mean she's a Vaishnavi. The whole idea of Vaishnav dress is something which was invented within the Hare Krishna movement. In fact, if you look at all the evidence from the Chaitanya Charitamrita, we have zero evidence that when Nimai Pandit in Navadweep inaugurated the Sankirtan movement and took his followers out in the streets of Navadweep, there's absolutely no evidence they wore uniforms. There's absolutely no evidence there was any such thing as a Vaishnav dress. There is no evidence they were dressed differently than everybody else. In fact, the message they sent by their body language, you could say, which I think is the right message, is that we are normal, respectable people who have chosen to chant Hare Krishna. I think that's the right message for America. We are normal, respectable people who have chosen to chant Hare Krishna. So if you consider yourself to be a respectable person, you should try chanting. Because that's what Lord Chaitanya did. And the idea that we have to slavishly follow. Prabhupada, once I was walking with him in 1976, I, I, from, I spent a month with Prabhupada, the month before the Mayapur festival in Mayapur. You know, I, and I, I was just with him hours every day. So every morning we would walk together I would walk with him on the roof of the, of the Lotus Building in Mayapur. And one time Prabhupada said to me, first of all, he was sort of telling me the latest idiotic criticism against himself, you know, from some people in the Gaudiya Math or India. And they were saying that, um, you know, they're criticizing because I fly around the world on jet planes. And so Prabhupada said to me, should I be a fool and imitate Mahaprabhu and just walk, you know, walk everywhere? He, so he said, if, if I want to sort of, you know, copy that lifestyle, I'd be a fool. If you want to dress like Lord Chaitanya, first of all, we're not because he wore rags and just, you know, this little gumption and everything. But even if you said you want to be, if, if you want to dress like Krishna, and why don't, then why use a computer? Why? Dr-? So 
anyway, that's the point. If we want to wear uniforms, I, I like uniforms. I was a big sports fan when I was a kid. You know, I like uniforms. But the thing is, uniforms work when people are already accepted as authorities. You just need to know who they are. And the uniform is designed to convey authority within an ex a specific cultural context. Our uniforms fail both those tests. Uh, Maharaj, I, I see when if you wear a dhoti, you wear tilak, sika, you go out, people, they not necessarily, they think you're an authority or a priest, but they think you're some, you're from some religious organization and they have some questions, they approach you. You go out dressed like everyone else, nobody comes up and approaches you. So, okay, good, okay, good point. Thanks for getting in the game, Puri. He just, he just hit one of the little curves like tennis, you know? I controlled my tongue as long as I could. No, go for it. No, I love it. I mean, it's fun. This is like theology tennis. Okay, so uh, we're having a good time. That's a good point. In fact, one, okay, here's my answer. I one time heard, I think it was NPR, they were interviewing a priest who said he didn't want to wear his collar because he just wanted to fit in more. And then one time he was out in his collar and some guy came up to him and said, I'm on my way to commit suicide, but I thought I should talk to you first because you're a priest. And he talked the person out of suicide. I agree with you. I agree with you that we should somehow show by our external appearance that we are spiritual teachers. A religious teacher. I totally agree with that. However, it can be done in a way which is much more a culture, culturally appropriate. For example, consider the collar. Like a typical priest will wear a pair of pants. It's a big start if you want to be, if you're a guy and you want to be taken seriously, put on some pants. That's a big start. Anyway, so he has a pair of pants. He has on a regular shirt not a Muslim shirt, you know, he has on a regular shirt. And by the way, a lot of people now come to Dhoi's, I've heard this in Dhoi's, and, and think we're Muslims when we go out with the Dhoi and everything. So anyway, you um, pair of pants, a shirt, a coat. And so if you look at the collar, if you look at the collar, it's like, it's in good taste. It's, it's not overstated. It's not shoving something in your face. It's not exotic. It's just a collar but it says all you need to know. I would say devotee's neck beads, you can't see mine right now, and I will not let you, but, but I would say like, like, like devotee neck beads are culturally equivalent. I think neck beads are the greatest thing since buttered chapatis. Because when you, thank you for laughing at my jokes that <laughs> you will definitely go back to Godhead. So it's, so if you wear neck beads, it's clear, you know, you're a Vaishnav. But it's it's modest, it's in good taste. You're still normal, but you have some indication that you're a Vaishnav. So if I see someone wearing neck beads, let's say, and I don't know the person, they're dressed normally, I'm thinking- But Mar hey, Maharaj, a lot of hippies and other people wear neck beads these days just for as a fashion, you know? Really? 
Neck beads, neck beads. I mean, they wear beads. Not that's... exactly. Yeah, maybe the three rounds or whatever. But they, a lot of young people wear like you know neck beads, like like yoga beads. You know. Okay. And how about neck beads and a big facial tattoo? No, just kidding. So, I think what we could do is if we <laughs> if we have neck beads, let's say, even if you had, let's say, for example, you had a little pin. I'm not saying we should do this. It's just throwing things out. Let's say you wore a little pin on your shirt that had T-lock on it or a chalk or something, something which the, 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 the country gradually came to understand these are Vaishnavs. I'm not, I personally, I want to advertise Krishna consciousness when I go on the street. I want to remind people of Krishna. I always wear my Jagannath hat. You know, and people like that. So I, I mean, I definitely want to advertise this movement every time I go out in public. So I'm totally in favor of that. I just want to do it in a way that doesn't make people think we're very, very weird. And that's all. That's all I'm saying. There are appropriate ways to do that. When Bhakti Siddhanta chose a Muslim kurta, it's not because, you know, in the spiritual world, Krishna wears a Muslim shirt. It's because it fit in. So let's find more normal respectful ways to let people know who we are. That's, that's my point. I, I personally can't agree that just wearing neck beads, people are going to come over to you and ask you what religion you are or something like that. You have to have more than neck beads. I, I agree with the Dodi. I think if you had, a, had some yogi pants, it would be a little easier for people to accept. Okay, let, let, me resp let me respond to you. Actually, I own, I'm the proud owner of four sets of yogi pants in assorted colors. But, okay, I, I, want to, I want to respond to your other point. And by the way, if you like the shirt I'm wearing, it's for sale. So I said, I want to do like, like they do in those bicycle races. I want to sell advertising space on my shirts when I give like Bogotan classes. Anyway, so getting, getting to your question, um, I think that, well, two things I can say. Number one, if we went out more and, and somehow if we were somehow more active out in the Western community, I think people would come to know what that means. If they don't know it now, it's because we haven't really, you know, we haven't really made it clear. But the second thing is, I'll tell you why I think people come up to you. And this is my personal opinion, but I think it's based on some practical observations and human psychology. I think one of the reasons people just come up to you is because they feel, because we're so exotic and they know like, I'm never gonna do this myself. So it's interesting. In other words, like for example, I was once in an airport, I think in Mexico, flying back to America. And uh, there were these people that got on the plane, obviously from some religious thing, they were in the, the uh, what do you call it? The waiting area, waiting to board, boarding gate, boarding area. And they were all dressed in white, like shirts and pants, all dressed in white. And so I just went up and said, hey, you know, what are you guys and what are you doing? I had no interest in their, you know, joining them. It was just, it was interesting. And so I find, for example, when I was at Harvard and, and, and he said, you know, let's open our eyes. Sure, people are coming up to us, but who's joining? When I was at Harvard, there was this girl there 
Japanese girl who was a Buddhist monk. And so we were friends, you know, I mean, I, I only saw her in classes, never saw her outside the classes, but you know, we were, she was very friendly and I was friendly. And so we'd talk a little bit and she came in her Buddhist robes. And so I noticed I had two reactions and, and just sort of spontaneous, not thought out ideas, just, just sort of observing my own spontaneous reactions. One was I respected her. I knew she was a monk and I respected that. And the second thing was, I was not really that interested in getting to know her because I thought you're so committed to something that probably we're not going to have a completely, you know, it's like you're already completely committed. To me, it's more interesting to talk to somebody where there's a chance of convincing them or, you know, something's at stake. And so I respect people who wear religious clothes. Like, for example, when I was living in Virginia uh, by the University of Virginia, there was a Trappist uh, uh, convent near me. And they made this great cheese. You buy these big blocks of cheese and they cost like, I don't know, $18 or something. So I would go over there to buy the cheese and it was $18. You know, and I didn't carry little bills. So I I just give them a $20 bill and I just say, keep the change. Because I thought, well, they're nuns. I'm not going to ask a nun for $2 change because I respected the fact that they've given their life to God best they can. And so I had like zero interest in becoming a Trappist monk or something or, or really, you know, becoming involved with the, with, the, with the nuns, but I just respected them. So I think, yeah, if you go out in religious clothes, you get a certain respect, you get a certain curiosity, but it does not translate into actually growing as a movement. Yeah, but even curiosity is one of the reasons people become devotees. It's, a, you know, to, to, for inquisitiveness. They're just inquisitive, and then they find out some things about it, and they become devotees. It's like uh, if if that were actually happening, you see, I think that this is not a theoretical discussion. I'm talking about the real world, and in the real world, that's not happening. Secondly, when Krishna uses the word jigyasur, it doesn't mean just sort of you know curious. Hey, I'm curious. That's not what it means. Prabhupada translates it as curiosity maybe, the curious, but the word jigyasu means something much more than that. It is a form of the, the verb, of course, just gya, to know, like jnanam. And it's a form of the word jigyasu, like, uh, which means uh, one who wants to know. And here, what you're trying to know here is God. So if someone comes up to you and says, you know, I really want to know about God. I'm really interested to know about God. Yeah, but if someone says, hey, why are you dressed that way? Or, you know, what do you guys do? Or what's this all about? That's not that's not what Krishna's talking about. No, but and so, and so he's what? interested in God, and they see you, they may approach you. All they- I can say is, I think ISKCON lives in this ethereal realm of, you know, ideas, almost like platonic ideas that somehow aren't really applying to the physical world we live in. And so when we look at, you know, it, you know, ISKCON devotees have all these explanations why what we're doing is the best thing to do. It's just that the movement's going nowhere. And, and the movement's been steadily decreasing for, you know, for decades. And, and if you project this out, like what's going to become of the Hare Krishna movement, it's not a pretty picture. So I, I think devotees live in their own little kind of self-contained world of ideas, of platonic ideas. And... And, and there's just one more thing. I hate to 
badger you about this, but actually I don't hate it. It's kind of sort of fun to badger you, but, and that is, I think devotees have a dangerously exaggerated view of Agyata Sukriti. That if people just touch a book, if people just hear the mantra, if it goes in their ear, they just associate with devotee. Krishna directly speaks against this, by the way, in 1728, last verse of chapter 17, where he says explicitly that if someone in, is engaged or engages in any type of religious activity and doesn't really believe in what they're doing, it has very little effect in this life or the next. And if you look at all the verses in the Bhagavatam that say that, you know, like Apanat Sangshitin Gorang in the first chapter of the Bhagavatam, one is entangled in the you know terrible material life. Janama vibhashogran, even if unconsciously or unwillingly, one chants the holy name. One can be liberated immediately. It doesn't say one will be liberated. It says one may be. And if you want to know under what circumstances one actually gets his benefit, you've got to go to chapter six of Bhagavad Gita, where Krishna explains why people join the Hare Krishna movement. And Krishna says there that the reason people are just sort of like drawn to Krishna consciousness, not a long, pro I mean, some people, you know, they, after years, they study, they test it, they try it. But if someone's just kind of like drawn to the movement as we were, Krishna says it's purvabhya sena tenaiva. It is by their previous practice in another life. And by that alone, by that alone, he says that that they revived the uh, what's the term he uses um, the 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 spiritual knowledge from their previous life. Poor vadehi come from a previous body. So the idea, like people are just going to be drawn to Krishna consciousness, uh, it's not happening. I think, I think if, if, if you try to understand ISKCON history in terms of the Gita, if you just take the Bhagavad Gita and try to understand ISKCON history, what you have is that Krishna not only created this amazing, unique fad, this interest in Indian mysticism, which never happened before, never happened since, and opened the way for Prabhupada, but at the same time, and Prabhupada himself confirmed this. Prabhupada himself used to say this. Krishna sent past life devotees all over the world and they heard the Maha Mantra and they, and they just responded. And what Krishna says is you're just kind of like carried away by it, almost beyond your control. It's like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm joining the Hare Krishna movement. There goes my family. So, you know, it's, um, so that being drawn into the Hare Krishna movement Krishna says that's because of previous life Krishna consciousness. And what we're finding now is that whereas that used to happen a lot, it doesn't happen anymore, very rarely. And so therefore, the way I understand that according to the Gita, not just, you know, Iskan Ra, 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 but according to Bhagavad Gita is that we've kind of burned through the inventory of past life devotees. And now we've actually got to go out and do it the normal way where you make people comfortable and you convince them. So my ideas are based on Shastra, you know, you know, and I just. So on that note, Maharaj, sorry, I said last question, but. 
No, go ahead. I, go li- for I it. lied. Uh, so what? <laughs> what's the matrix? <laughs> so what's what's the success of 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 Krishna West? How 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 are you finding success in Krishna West? Is what I would like to know. Okay. Like what what is your strategy? How is it going? How many people are coming? And you know. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, yeah, basically, it's a dangerous America. cult based on fanatical worship of me as the leader. <laughs> just, that was a joke. It's um, actually as much, as much as I am. <laughs> ever since I was a kid, I, was, I always thought when I grew up, I want to be a cult leader. No, actually, it's um, as much as I'm kind of liberal on the external things because Prabhupada authorized it. Um. On the basics, I'm actually very conservative. I'm not into Vastu Shastra, so-called Shastra. I'm not into astrology. I'm not into Hatha Yoga. I mean, it's nice if someone wants to use that. Actually, I believe, for me anyway, for my service, that all the power in preaching is in three, is in the, the Maha Mantra. I have complete faith in the power of the Maha Mantra if it's chanted without offenses and people hear that chanting. And I believe in the power of Bhagavad Gita. And of course you give people prasadam, which is a timeless way of making friendship. And so in terms of what we actually do, and of course the other devotees, I have disciples doing Krishna West and other people, and you know, they may teach yoga or this or that, but, but the, see the secret of why Krishna West is growing and it is growing, it's growing very quickly all over the Western world, Latin America, Europe, and not only in programs that have the name Krishna West, but more and more and more and more devotees are adopting this method with success. Uh, Because the power is not in the clothes. The power is in Krishna's name. Lord Chaitanya said, Harir Nama, Harir Nama, Harir Nama, Eva Kevalam. Eva Kevalam does not mean only that we don't do other rituals. The power is not in the clothes. It's not if you take a piece of cloth and, and, and you fold it this way, it's spiritual. And if, if you fold it that way, it's material. To me, that's just Harry Potter Vedic culture. The power, the power is in Krishna's name. And the power is in Prabhupada's purity. The power is in the Bhagavad Gita and Krishna's words. That's where the power is. And so, like, like in 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 the like in Argentina and Chile, it's like it's amazing how many people are coming, educated people, professional people. It's just it's it's like an, it's like a you know, it's like a Hare Krishna explosion. And other places will. You look at all the programs in North America where they're tracking a lot of Western people, practically in every case, they're adopting or you know they they already had this style that's what's working and i am i don't want to say fanatical but i am extremely heavy on the point of not changing Prabhupada's teachings not changing our basic practice being within iskon i'm actually extremely i i i don't compromise on these points another thing is if i have to say it that I think is a huge factor is that Krishna West is we do not allow anything like male chauvinism. And 
that you know half the leaders of Krishna West, at least, are women. They're chaste, powerful Vaishnavis. And they're managing all kinds of programs in Krishna West. They're doing a great job. And we don't, you know, we're not, there's not like affirmative action. We don't like, okay, there's a more qualified man, but we'll put a woman in there because, you know, we're, no. I mean, it, it, it's not affirmative action. It's just what Krishna said, Pandita Samadarshana. We're just giving everyone equal opportunity. If you can do the job and you want to do the job, do the job. There's no gender bias. The women are chaste. We basically do not have, you know, fall downs between men and women. The women are chaste. They're, they're mature, intelligent devotees. And they're doing an incredible amount of service. So I think what we've done is, in one sense, is release just a huge reservoir of untapped energy and, and ability. So this is what people want. I get letters every day. You cannot believe how many people, especially educated people, have come back to ISKCON because of this. I mean, all these letters say that. I now want to again become involved with ISKCON or I'm in ISKCON, but I'm interested in preaching now because now I see here's a strategy that works. People, I mean, how many times can you go out in the street and dance around and keep telling yourself someday it'll work? I mean, I believe, this is my opinion, that a lot of the Hare Krishna movement is actually demoralized. It's a kind of sort of under the surface depression because, you know, I mean, we're not fools. And when you belong to a movement and you're trying your best and years and years and years go by and it doesn't grow. You know, you can talk all you want about prophecies and, and Agyata Sukriti, but in fact, I'll tell you why a lot of people, devotees don't want to get involved actively because they, they, they may not say it, they may not even think it, but it's just like, why bother? It doesn't change anything. If I go on Harinam or don't go on Harinam, if I, you know, sell a book, I mean, it just, it doesn't seem to change very much. It is growing in India though, but. Sure, because it's like, yeah, because Indians have, you know, special piety. One time I was with Prabhupada in Mayapur and I was on the balcony with Prabhupada, that was in 76. And it was Gorpurnima day. And there were just like these unlimited people pouring into the Mayapur complex. And I'd never seen so many people in one place since I went to a sold out LA Rams game, you know, NFL. But I mean, this is even more, there's even more people when I was a kid, but just like hundreds of thousands of people. And I was, it was just so inspiring to see that many people coming to take darshan of, of the Panchatattva. So I went to Prabhupada and on the balcony there and I just said, India is an amazing place. And so Prabhupada looked at me as if I'd committed the error of damnation by faint praise. You know, it's like, it's almost like, is that all you're gonna say? So he, Prabhupada said to me, it is the most important place in the universe. And so, I mean, I personally, by Krishna's mercy, experienced the spiritual world in Vrindavan. I know what these places are, you know, so, so it's not that, uh, you know, I think it's an ordinary place. And of course, the movement's doing well there because it's, it's Bard Varsha. 
But Krishna has created a situation where in order to save this planet, we have to attract the malechas or convert or change them. And that's why Prabhupada could have said, Nirvishesha Shunyavadi Bharata Desha Tarine, because there is more than enough impersonalism to go around in India. Voidism is not kind of so popular anymore, but, but um, I mean, you know, in India, there's lots of impersonalism and there's lots of relativism, like there's so many gods and there's no gods and this is God and that's God. But Prabhupada said, Prabhupada defined himself as the savior of the Western countries. So there's two possibilities. Either Prabhupada just said that, but it's not really true and it's not really going to happen. Or Prabhupada said that and we have no other business, those of us who live in the West, than to somehow or other become instruments so that it does come true. Just like Prithu in the fourth canto said, you know, let me do these things and then glorify me. I'm not saying we should stop chanting Prabhupada's Pranam mantra. That's not my point. But my point is the way you honor a great personality like Prabhupada is that you show that his words are true. That's how you honor a great personality. And so it's just a fact that it worked. It's not that I came up with the idea. Look at history. ISKCON, at least certain wings of it. I mean, they're all sincere devotees. They're all great souls. I'm sure Krishna loves them. I'm sure they love Krishna. I'm sure they'll go back to Godhead. But in practical terms, a lot of ISKCON is trying to do something which I would say goes against the laws of nature and has been shown historically to be virtually impossible. And that is trying to take a culture external, not Mahamantra, not Shastra, not Prabhupada, we're talking about the external ethnic, to take something from a third world country and use it to colonize culturally colonize the first world. Water, culture is like water. It flows down, not up. Culture does, I mean, history, all of history shows that culture does not flow up from a culture that has less prestige, right or wrong, right or wrong, from a culture that has less prestige to a culture that has more prestige. There is Basically, you know, roughly speaking, one-way traffic between India and the West, and it's India becoming more and more westernized. Obviously, there are some exceptions, details, but for the most part, it's one-way traffic, and trying to fight that is just futility. It's not working. I believe it'll never work. And so, to me, it's more important to save the planet and more important to honor Prabhupada than to, uh, you know, whatever. To me, that's what matters. That's the way Prabhupada trained me. Thank you, Maharaj. Thank you. So I guess maybe we'll end here. Thank you all for listening. I uh, apologize for going so long, but next time, don't wind me up so much. You know, you wind me up, then I... But as a special thanks to Piari, my old friend. I hope we're still friends after this talk. And... Um, 
I'll know if I go to visit him in Connecticut. I'm sorry, we actually have no prasadam in the house and we're really not going to have any for about a week. But anyway, thank you, thank you very much to Piari Mohan and Ananda Leela, who uh, organized all these programs, all the technical part. And she's heard these things a million times, so she must have some really advanced way of tuning me out. I don't know how she can stand to hear it so many times. But anyway, and... I yes. was about to say that uh, the next time you are here, a stack full of buttered chapatis will be waiting for you. Okay. Thank you. Okay, now I'm now I'm motivated. <laughs> <laughs> and your daughter, thank you. What tell me your name again, the daughter? Danya Gopi. Thank you so much for listening. You were a very, very good girl. <laughs> so thank you all very much. I appreciate the questions. The tougher they are, the more fun they are. And uh, yeah, so thank you all very, very much. We had some questions. Oh, should I read them very quickly or not? questions people sent in on chat. They're yeah. from your group, I think. Oh. I'll do it very, very quickly. Prabhupada, no, Dodi, don't say you have a nice coat pan. Don't say that you have to. I never said that you have adopted it. Laughs. I never said that. You put on Dodi. No, no, no. This is just a quote from Vitebase, the one you're talking oh, about. Oh, 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 oh. oh, oh. Mad Pakanta that had a question. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Okay. Well, the good news is you're not going to hear me anymore. So... <laughs> You're going to be free of all this haranguing and uh anyway thank you so much for coming i mean into yeah. our thank you all very much i enjoyed all the questions i really it was great that you guys asked questions i think malati pre also asked some questions and uh appreciate it i hope to see you again soon and i wish you all the best